Our Father, we thank you for your provision and care. Most of us have been going since early this morning, working, trying to make a living. We're grateful for jobs. Most of us have had a season or two where we have not had work. And we have guys in here in that position. We, we are mindful that uh, Psalm 20, 127 says, Unless the Lord builds the house, they who labor, labor in vain. Uh, so much of life is doing the same thing. So much of life is just simply sticking to the schedule, showing up on time, doing our work, as best we can. And Lord, you have set things up so that we work in order to provide for our families. And we are living in times where there are many challenges economically. We are fighting all kinds of new regulations and bureaucracies. But nevertheless, we go about our work. Uh, ultimately, we work to feed our families. We work to provide income so that we can take care of the things that need to be done. And if we're not careful, that can consume all of our time and all of our energy. Uh, we can work hard, but unless we are working according to your guidelines and with your help and with your strength, well, the scripture says it's in vain. Unless the Lord builds the house, they who labor, labor in vain. We are thankful for our families. We are thankful for a season that we've just come through of Christmas where families get together. Um, we are grieved over our nation and what we observe in terms of the breakdown of what you have instituted for families to be and what you intend them to be. And Lord, as grieved as we become, And as much as we wish we could change a lot of things, really all we can change is what's going on in our own lives and in the lives of our own family members. You have given each of us a sphere of responsibility. Um, it used to be said, it's not said much anymore, but it used to be said that a, a man is king of his castle. The fact of the matter is, you've called us as husbands and fathers. It is a high calling. You've called us as grandfathers. And you have given us a responsibility for those under our watch and those under our care. In a day where so many are abandoning those responsibilities, help us to be faithful. Help us to endure. Help us to be steadfast. Help us not to become weary in well-doing. Help us, Lord, to do the work that you have called us to do. It is the most important work in the world, but it is hard work, and it is exhausting work. Uh, it's hard to juggle all the responsibilities that are on us. We don't talk about this much. We don't whine about it, but it's a difficult task. I pray for encouragement for every man here in his family responsibilities, uh, in, his, 
in his relationship with his wife, in his relationship with his kids, whether they're at home or whether they're growing up with their own families. We want to be used. We don't want to be passive. We want to be influencers. We don't want to be controllers, but we want to be men who can influence our families in the right direction. Not only teach it to them, but live it out in front of them. Encourage us, Lord. We've all failed. We've all fallen short. We all have regrets in this area. Thank you for forgiveness. And thank you that you forget our past failures. We don't have to live in regret. We press on to the high calling that you have put upon our lives. Encourage us tonight. Strengthen us. Put want to back in our hearts. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. We're going to start a new series tonight. And I should have done this a long time ago, but I didn't. Uh, I want to do a series tonight that in... I would have a couple of different titles for it. The first title that I would have for it, or one of the titles, would be um, Spiritual Leadership 101. Uh, there is another title that I would have for it, and this is a little self-serving, but I'm going to go ahead and use it anyway, and it would be the title Point Man. Uh, I did a book in 1990. It was the first book I ever did called Point Man. It, the subtitle was How a Man Can Lead a Family. Not that I knew so much about leading a family, but I knew that the scripture had a lot to say about leading a family. And as I was thinking about this winter and what we start on and what we do, uh, I have been increasingly aware of just looking around, what we, what the presentation that was made earlier on the workshop that's coming on in pornography, and the effect that this is having on young men, and some of the comments that were made of things that we would never even think about, physiological effects that are upon young men. The, the breakdown continues. Um, so what I want to do this semester is I want to talk about Male leadership, male spiritual leadership, as husbands, as fathers, as grandfathers. Quite frankly, um, when I did my doctoral dissertation at Dallas Seminary many years ago, I surveyed a thousand men uh, and asked them all kinds of questions about their work, about their faith, about the balance between career and family, about their ethics, about their integrity, about application of truth, about pornography, about reading scripture, about spiritual disciplines. I accumulated all kinds of research. And out of that, uh, I could definitively say, here are the issues and here is the research. Um, there was a crying need when I wrote this book in 1990. Things have not gotten better. I've said this before to you. I've quoted what Martin Lloyd-Jones said to his congregation at Westminster Chapel 
in London in 1959. Martin Lloyd-Jones said to his congregation, we are living in days of exceptional evil. He said that in 1959. He died in 1981. He would not believe where we are right now. Um, I've had guys ask me over the years, where did you get the concept of point man? I got it in the shower. <laughs> That's literally where I got it. I, I was aware, and doing my research, I'm aware, you're aware, and we throw this terminology around, not, I don't say that flippantly, we, we use it because it's true, that if you want to have a biblical family, and notice I didn't say traditional family, because, you know, there are all kinds of, I mean, so much of traditional family is TV stuff, and those of us who grew up at a certain period remember the TV sitcoms, and, you know, that were not quite all real. But um, there is such a thing as a biblical family. There is a pattern that God has instituted, and the biblical family never goes out of vogue. The biblical family never goes out of style. The biblical family is always the norm because it is what God has intended from creation. And it is for all cultures, um, in all times, the mandate that he is given to build a biblical family. Um, but when we look at the scriptures, we know that there is an enemy, and we know from Ephesians 6 and from other passages in Scripture that there is spiritual warfare. When Christ comes into our lives, when we hear the gospel, when we are regenerated, when the scales fall off of our eyes like they fell off of Paul's eyes, and he saw the truth of Christ, we are changed. If any man is in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things have passed away, all things have become new. Uh, Satan has blinded the minds of the unbelieving, that they may not see the truth of the gospel. We couldn't see it. And then the Spirit of God did an internal work, drew us to Christ, and we called out to the Lord Jesus Christ to forgive us of our sins. Uh, we, we believe that salvation is through Christ alone, by faith alone. Period. It's not by works. Ephesians 2.8. For by grace you have been saved, that not of yourselves. It's the gift of God, not as a result of works that any man should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus. For good works, not good works to be saved. You were saved in verse 8. Created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we might walk in them. So he redeems us, he saves us, he gives us eternal life. He gives us uh, spiritual discernment. The natural man cannot discern the things of God, so, for they are spiritually understood. So suddenly our eyes are open. We can see things, spiritually speaking in Scripture, that we couldn't see before because we've been born again. Um, here's what happens. When a man gets serious about Christ, the enemy gets serious about you. Um, if you're a husband, if you're a father, you've been given a leadership responsibility for your family. If you're a grandfather, 
And, and that's always interesting because a lot of times we think that once we raise our kids and you finally get them through school and go through bankruptcy several times with the tuition and the weddings and all that, and what a fun time that is. Um, it's just part of life. But we think that once those kids are raised and up and out of the house, I mean, we kind of have this mindset, well, I've done my job. But in actuality, you're just kind of halfway through. Because Deuteronomy 6, in talking to the men of Israel, the Lord says, talking to the men, he says, now these are the commandments and the statutes and the judgments, Moses says, which the Lord, our God, has commanded me, Moses, to teach you so that you might do these things that God has spoken in the land which you were going over to possess. They'd wandered for 40 years, now they're going to go take the land. That you might do these things in the land you were going over to possess. Now watch this. So that you and your son and your grandson might fear the Lord. Our obligations, our responsibilities as men who are spiritual leaders of our family don't stop when our kids leave the house and are on their own and self-sufficient and uh, not living under our roof. They, they get married, they have kids. See, we're just now in the next phase. We're responsible for our sons and for our grandsons. Now, it's different, but we still have a responsibility. Um, when a man comes to Christ, and this begins to dawn on us, the responsibilities and this, this fear. Um, every man, every Christian man, is, um, is the pastor of his family. You are the shepherd of your family. Um, that's what the word husband means. It's one who cares for. It's one who shepherds. It's one who takes care of. Um, we uh, use the term animal husbandry. You can study animal husbandry. Uh, animal husbandry is the breeding and care of animals. Uh, as men who are husbands, we are to... Uh, we are to be married, we are to have children, and we're to care for our families. We're to care for our wives, we're to care for our kids, we're to care for our grandkids. We are to, we are to take care as husbands. And see, we're living in a culture where everyone used to understand that. When I did Point Man in 1990, things were on the decline. There was no question about it. But nowhere near where we are today. Um, to be a husband is a spiritual responsibility before God. We'll give an account to God. We, back then, the preponderance of marriages that broke up due to adultery was because of men leaving. That still happens, but What's remarkable is how many women are leaving and abandoning. It's on both sides. Now, 
we can only take care of ourselves in terms of our responsibilities before the Lord. But when a man starts taking this seriously, know this, know this. If you belong to Christ, the enemy is going to come after you because the enemy hates Christ and you belong to Christ and you've been adopted into his family, so now you've got a target on your back. Um, as Christian husbands, there is a shift. When Christ comes into our heart, there is a change of uh, heart, there is a change of thinking, there is to be a change of behavior because of what Christ has done in our lives. It's just not mental, but it comes out in every area. It comes out in our behavior. So as, as Christian husbands, just talk about husbands here for a minute, uh, we are to take care. We're not to take off. We're not to take advantage of. We're not to take. We're to take care. We are to serve. The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. Well, that's what we are to do as we fulfill our responsibilities. Um, this is critical stuff. It's critical stuff. Uh, this is not new. Um, if you've been in the scriptures. But I think it needs to be underscored, and I think it needs to be underlined. Because here's what's happening. The very foundations of our nation and the very foundations of our civilization are crumbling. Uh, Psalm 11.3 says, If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? And we're, all, we're concerned about that, and rightfully so. But quite frankly, there's not a lot I can do about a nation. What I can do is in my own home, in my own family, um, that's where it has to begin. In 1980, James Dobson made a statement. Now think about this, 1980. Dobson said this, the Western world stands at a great crossroads in its history. It is my opinion that our very survival as a people will depend upon the presence or absence of masculine leadership in millions of homes. I believe with everything within me that husbands hold the key to the preservation of the family. And he's right. But we have a culture where there, how much has changed in our nation since 1980? Well, it's dramatic. Um, we live in a culture where postmodernism rules and reigns. Now, what a, that's a big term, postmodernism. I mean, we hear it all the time. But postmodernism basically, and there are a lot of nuances to it, but as I understand postmodernism, and this is in our educational system, it's in the academic world, it's in the judicial system, it's everywhere. Uh, Postmodernism basically says there is no absolute truth. In fact, I'd back up. Postmodernism definitely would say there is no absolute God, therefore there is no absolute truth, therefore there is no absolute reality. Um, 
My truth is my truth. Your truth is your truth. There is no objective standard. Uh, it can be anything you want. Ravi Zacharias, many of you are aware of his ministry and great Christian philosopher and apologist for the faith. Uh, I found a story that he told recently, and I'm just going to read it to you. Zacharias says, I remember lecturing at Ohio State University, one of, the largest, one of the largest universities in this country. I was minutes away from beginning my lecture, uh, and my host was driving me past a new building at Ohio State called the Wexner Center for the Performing Arts. And he said to me, this is America's first postmodern building. And I was startled for a moment, and I said, what is a postmodern building? He said, well, the architect said that he designed this building with no design in mind. And this guy's serious. When the architect was asked why, he said, well, if life itself is capricious, why should our buildings have any design and any meaning? So he has pillars in the building that have no purpose. Only an American university <laughs> would build a building like this. So he has pillars that have no purpose. He has stairways that go nowhere. He has a senseless building built, and somebody has paid for it. I said, Zacharias, so his argument was that if life had no purpose and design, why should the building have any design? And the gentleman said, that is correct. And I said, did he do the same with the foundation? <laughs> Absolutely brilliant. All of a sudden, there was silence. Zacharias says, you see, you and I can fool with the infrastructure as much as we would like. But we dare not fool with the foundation because it will call our bluff in a hurry. That postmodern building did not have a postmodern foundation. Because the foundation is the most important part of a building. The foundation is the most important part of a family. The foundation is the most important part of a church. It's the most important part of a nation. The foundation is the most important part of anything. And Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, he said the foolish man built his house upon the sand. And the winds blew and the storm came and his house went down. But the wise man built his house upon the rock. And the storms came and the wind blew. And that house stood firm and stood secure. We are called to build on a foundation that in this culture is mocked and scorned and ridiculed, but it is the only foundation that stands because it is God's foundation. God invented the family. God owns the family. God invented marriage. He owns marriage. He has the copyright on marriage. He has the patent on marriage. He owns it all. He created it all. And that foundation is still there. I love that. Did he do the same with the foundation? 
Andreas Kostenberger is, a, is an excellent scholar, and last year I quoted some from his book, God, Marriage, and Family. I, I want to read a section uh, tonight because I quoted Dobson from 1980. Well, here is a book that was um, written in 2004, and then so many changes occurred so rapidly in regard to marriage and family after 2004 that he completely revised this in 2010. Uh, it, it's a tremendous work. Dobson talked about, he was concerned about Western culture. He talks about Western culture. Let me just read three paragraphs to you. Measured against the biblical teaching on marriage and the family, it seems undeniable that Western culture is decaying. In fact, the past few decades have, with, have witnessed nothing less than a major paradigm shift with regard to marriage and family, which quite honestly is why I want to teach this stuff this semester. The West Judeo-Christian heritage and foundation have largely been supplanted by a libertarian ideology that elevates human freedom and self-determination as the supreme principles for human relationships. In their confusion, many hail the decline of the biblical traditional model of marriage and the family and its replacement by new competing moralities as major progress. Yet the following list of adverse effects of unbiblical views of marriage and the family upon society demonstrates that replacing the biblical slash traditional model of marriage and the family with more progressive ones, now watch this, is detrimental even for those who do not view the Bible as authoritative. In other words, you get off biblical principles, it hurts everybody, even those who don't hold to Christ or to the scriptures. Now he's going to list some consequences, and we might say this is the casualty list. When I wrote Point Man, I had a whole page of here are the ramifications, here are, this, here are some statistics in regard to show what's happened to the American family, and I wrote it in 1990. Uh, here's an updated casualty list. Uh, he says one of the negative consequences of the erosion of the biblical traditional mo model are skyrocketing divorce rates. However, the cost of, of divorce are troubling not only for the people involved, especially the children, but also for society at large. While children may not show ill effects of the trauma of divorce in the short run, serious negative long-term consequences have been well documented. Now here's another one, sex outside of marriage. Remember that John Wayne movie where he was an American boxer who moved back to Ireland? What was it called? The Quiet Man. The Quiet Man. Yeah. And, uh, and he meets, um, goes back to this little town, I guess, that his family was originally from. And he uh, meets this redhead, Maureen O'Hara. Yeah. He met her all over the world. Uh, he met her in all kinds of movies. They were a pretty good pair. But if you remember, when, and you know, they kind of had this friction between them and didn't like, and then, you know, they're falling in love. And he's going to court her. Do you remember that, how they did that? And there was this guy who was the actual matchmaker. 
to the town, the little guy with the black stovepipe hat. And he had a car, he had a horse and wagon. And if they were going to go courting, they would ride in the, uh, in the matchmaker's uh, horse and buggy where everybody could see them. But they were always chaperoned, you see. Sex outside of marriage was just, it was unthinkable. Absolutely unthinkable. It was unthinkable in America. When you, when you read some history, uh, things started changing when the automobile was invented. Things started changing in the 20s. Uh, we only had movie theaters, you had drive-in movie theaters. Uh, I mean, you can read about this. And, and suddenly, the control and the protection of the home was under assault, and young people were allowed to get together in ways they had never in history allowed to be together before. Okay. That's not in this book. I'm just talking off the top of my head. So here's another casualty. Kostenberger says, sex outside of marriage, because it does not occur within the secure environment of an exclusive lifetime commitment also exerts a heavy price from those who engage in adulterous or otherwise illicit sexual relationships. Teenage pregnancies and abortion are the most glaring examples. While pleasurable in the short run, sex outside of marriage takes a heavy toll both psychologically and spiritually and contributes to the overall insecurity and stress causing the destabilization of our cultural foundation. Here's another one. Homosexuality deprives children in households run by same-sex partners of primary role models of both sexes and is unable to fulfill the procreative purposes God intended for the marriage union. Interesting article I saw today in the Atlantic magazine. Uh, uh, um, on the political spectrum, a liberal publication. But an article, and you can see it online, that talks about the importance of fathers. I was kind of shocked. But what's happened is, is that things have gotten so bad that suddenly notice is being taken of how much better off children are who have fathers in the home. Amazing what research will show you. <laughs> but we're talking, about, we're, talking about, we're talking about kids who's, who've been impacted. Some of you were impacted because your father wasn't in the home. I've met men who are in their 50s and 60s trying to please their fathers, and their fathers have been dead for 20 years. There's a father vacuum. There's a father. God designed the family. Children need a father and a mother. Divorce has obliterated that. I'm not, and, 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 and when I say that, it makes someone feel guilty if you've been through divorce. Um, there are guys here who have been through divorce and you didn't want the divorce. 
But the way the laws have changed, you didn't have any way of stopping anything. It used to be you could stop divorce. You had to consent to a divorce, but that was thrown out. Now, you can divorce on a whim, and it's easier to divorce a spouse, really, than it is to fire an employee. So we have guys here tonight who didn't want divorce, but it was brought on you, and there was nothing you could do. You just couldn't stop it. Now, some of you perhaps are here, and you're thinking, well, I'm divorced, but I'm the guy who initiated, and I brought it on, and I never should have done that, and that's a deep regret in my life. Gosh, what do I do? My wife's remarried. I can't reconcile. What do I do? Well, We all have things. For some, it might be that. For others, we've got something else. But we have all done things, and we were wrong, and we were willful, and we knew they were wrong, and we went ahead and did them anyway. Every guy in this room has done that. Just different types of sin. What do you do? You run to Christ. You run to Him, and in brokenness and repentance, you confess that sin to Him. A broken and contrite spirit he will not despise. Then you say, well, my life is over. Your life isn't over. Now, there are consequences for all of us when we willfully sin. There are consequences that happen, but God gives grace to handle the consequences. But it doesn't mean that God shelves us, and it doesn't mean that God will never use us. See, a lot of times we think, oh, I did this willfully, and the enemy keeps throwing up my face. God will never use me. Uh, God's against me. No, if you're in Christ, that sin, Jesus took that sin upon him. Well, I'm going to have a second-class life from here on out. Well, the Scripture says in Psalm 103, it says, He does not reward us according to our sin. He has not dealt with us according to our iniquity. See, we think God is going to reward us based on our sin. But it says he doesn't do that. He deals with us out of grace and out of mercy. Does he not? We have guys in here that have been through a divorce and it was their fault and they came to know the Lord and he changed them and, and God's blessed them. Why? Because they were broken and they came to the Lord in, in confession and repentance. This is the great news of the gospel. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Everybody has done it. But Christ has come and redeemed us and forgiven us. This is, this is amazing love. How can it be that thou, my God, has died for me? And I was having a conversation with a friend this week at breakfast, and we were talking about, we know this, but it keeps coming up again. Oh, my gosh, I can't, why, man, I can't believe, you know, what if God's mad? Well, he's not mad. He put it on Christ. It's just almost too good to be true. That's why John Newton called it amazing grace. Right? And I've heard, I, I remember as a kid hearing this, and I also remember some people in my family saying, well, no, no, you can't teach that because it'll give them license to go out and sin and do whatever they want. But Romans says, shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? No. When you understand what Jesus has done for you, you're not going to go out and live against him. You're going to live in gratitude to him. Does that make sense? Okay. 
This breakdown of the family hurts people. The next casualty he has on here, which quite frankly, back when Dobson spoke in 1980, and I wrote Point Man in 1990, this wasn't quite, I mean, truly, this was, this really wasn't even on the radar, which is gender role confusion. You, you just had a law passed in California, and you have kindergartners that can choose what bathroom to go into based on laws around gender role confusion. Gender role confusion, too, is an increasingly serious issue. Many men and women have lost the concept of what it means to be masculine or feminine. This results in a loss of the complete identity of being human as God created us, male and female. Uh, when my brother Jeff was pastoring in California, a lady came in and, you know, talked to him and was looking for a, a, a church home and uh, became comfortable with what, uh, just was comfortable with, with hearing the gospel and really understanding it for the first time. Came back in and told Jeff, um, um, my real name's not Laura, it's Walt. And Walt today has a ministry. Been through the surgeries, bought the whole thing, was, a, was an executive with a major automobile company, left everything. Uh, got to the point of absolute despair and suicide. Now has a ministry to transgendered people. Christ can redeem anyone with any situation. Isn't that amazing? He's flying all over the world giving presentations to legislatures. Suddenly people are asking questions. Not an issue before. All I'm saying to you is the foundations are being destroyed. Now you're aware of it. I'm aware of it. This is why we need to take another pass and another look at the responsibilities God has given to us as men, as husbands and fathers. Um, so I came up with the idea of point man in the shower because I was aware that if you follow Christ and you want to have a biblical family, there's going to be a war. And it hit me like a ton of bricks in the shower that a husband and father you know what a husband is? You know what a father is? He's a point man. He's the guy. And I got out of the shower, I dried off, and I called my buddy Stu Weber, who was a Greenberry in Vietnam and counterintelligence. And I talked to Stu. I said, hey, Stu, walk me through being on patrol in Vietnam. First thing he said was, he goes, phosphorus grenades. I'll never forget the phosphorus grenades, Steve. I said, really? He goes, yeah. I mean, right now I can, I can almost feel it in my nostrils. And then he just started walking me through what it was like to be on the point. See, a point man is the guy who's chosen on a particular day to lead some men. Sometimes it's behind enemy-occupied territory. Sometimes it's just a reconnaissance mission. Whatever it might be. But the, the skill 
And the leadership acumen of that guy on point is critical to the men behind him. And, and I remember Stu telling me, he said, yeah, you know, you just, you, your eyes had to be everywhere and your senses had to be absolutely on hyperdrive. Um, you had to be, you're, you're looking because there, you know there are snipers and they're, they're camouflaged. But you can't always be out here because you'll never see the tripwire down here. I mean, you, don't you just feel the tension from that description? Uh, and some of you guys walked the point. Some of you guys did that. You know full well. You ought to be up here describing this instead of me. Well, in this war on the family, as a husband and father and as a grandpa, because it applies to grandfathers, you're not leading a group of guys. You're leading your wife and kids, and if you have grandkids, your grandkids. You see? This is why the enemy wants to take you out. This is why he doesn't want you to be effective as a leader in your home, spiritually. I think the enemy has a twofold strategy for Christian men who are married and who are fathers. Let me give it to you. All right, it's a real simple, real simple scenario. Number one, he wants to, first of all, alienate and sever the relationship that you enjoy with your wife. Okay, he wants to alienate and then sever the relationship with your that you enjoy with your wife. Doesn't matter if you've been married a year or 10 years, or 20 years, or 40 years. Here's what the Bible says about marriage. For this cause, a man shall leave his father and mother, and shall cleave, shall adhere to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Uh, what the enemy wants to do is that he wants to take the two who have become one, and he wants to make them two again. Doesn't matter how long you've been married. Doesn't matter how good your marriage is today. He want, and well, well, how does he go about that? Very subtly, over time. Uh, he wants to drive a wedge between you and your wife. Maybe a wedge that isn't there now. Uh, but that doesn't mean that one won't come up later. Uh, he's always attempting, he's always attempting to take the, the two who have become one and make them two again. So I've got to be aware of... Satan's devices. I've got to watch carefully my relationship with my wife. And if there is a breach, if something is between us, it needs to be repaired. Just as Nehemiah repaired the wall, so I've got to repair my marriage. I can't let things sit and foul and fester and become infected going up my arm in the relationship. They have to be dealt with. I cannot get passive when there is an issue between my wife and I. Years ago, um, my oldest, Rachel, I was in high school. John was in middle school. Josh is in, I don't know, fifth or sixth grade. One night, Mary said to me, in the, in, we were in the bathroom. It was in the morning, and, and she said to me, we were talking, and suddenly got really, I mean, we were, man, suddenly we're, it's heavy duty. And she said to me, she said, Steve, 
I know you love me. I know that. I never question that. I know you'd die for me. I know you'd do anything for me. I just don't feel that you love me. I was shocked. I said, you've never understood me. <laughs> I didn't say that. I'm stupid, but I'm not that stupid. She was talking to me from her heart. And I thought, how did this happen? And I didn't have a clue. It was serious. You don't feel that I love you. She said, I don't. Well, what am I doing talking to guys about marriage? And in essence, what I said to her, I said, Mary, I don't have, I don't even know what to say to you. I got to think about this. I mean, I'm shocked by this, and, and, and honestly, I'm stunned. I don't, have, I don't have anything to say to you, except I, I, I know this is deep, and I know this is accurate. And a, I don't know, a day or two, I, mean, I was praying, saying, Lord, what's going on? What, you got to show me. I, I, can't, I, I never saw this. I wasn't aware I was doing this. And you know what I became aware of was... When I was a kid, I grown up in church. Our family was always real involved. In my life, growing up in church, most of the pastors that we had, their kids wound up rebelling and leaving the faith and walking away. And I think, and I know, and I told Mary this, I said, you know what, Mary? I am so conscious that that could happen to our kids, that they feel neglected for the ministry and I'm not involved in their lives. I said, I'm going to tell you what I think I've done. I think I've been so aware of them that I forgot about you. And I put my energy into them. Because I know you're not going anywhere and I've taken you for granted. And I haven't met your needs. So I'm going to try and do some things to let you know, not just know, but you'll sense and feel that I love you. That was my assignment, wasn't it? See, everybody gets out of whack. We all have blind spots. Everybody loses balance. This thing always comes up with, how do you find a balance between, how do I find a balance between my career and my family? It's a big question. Um, balance is interesting. You know how you find balance? You find balance by losing it. How did you learn to ride a bicycle? I remember my dad took the training wheels off of my bike. This is a big deal. I'm watching him do it. And I'm kind of I'm a little nervous because uh, those training those training wheels are great. You know, I mean, if you go too far left. <laughs> They catch you, and they roll with you. Go too far right, you're good. So my dad took the training wheels off, and he said, all right, Steve, now you get on the bike, and I'm just going to walk along and jog alongside of you, and I got my seat. You can't see my hand, but it's on the, it's on the seat. 
So you just, you just ride, and I'll be right here with you. So I'm riding, and I'm excited. I mean, I'm 19. This is finally going to happen. <laughs> and we're going down that alley behind our house. And my dad's just kind of going with me, and I'm having, hey, hey, this is great, you know, and I'm kind of, and I'm okay, and, and my dad's got his hand, but what I didn't realize is that he just moved his hand an inch or two, and it wasn't there. I thought it was there, but it wasn't. And I must have ridden 50 yards by myself. I had to find balance. How do you find balance? By losing it. You find balance by losing balance. No one is ever in perpetual balance. We lean too far here, and suddenly we realize, oh, I'm, oh no, no, I'm, I've, leaned, I've got to get back over here. And then sometimes we compensate over here. See, that's just life, is it not? The second strategy of the enemy, he not only wants to alienate and sever the relationship that you enjoy with your wife, he wants to alienate and sever the relationship that you enjoy with your children. He wants to get a wedge in between you and your kids. When our kids are small, when they're just little cute kids walking around in their little jammies with feet in them, when they're two, three, four, five, and six, they're just cute little kids. They think their daddy's hung the moon, right? Aren't those fun years? When they hit 12, 13, 14, they want their daddies to go to the moon don't they? It's called adolescence. Those are the challenging years. Uh, even when you have adult kids, they're still, they're still your children. It's different because they're peers. The enemy is going to try and get a wedge in between. The enemy is always trying to get a wedge between a father and his children. And we cannot allow the wedge to remain. We have to remove it. We cannot allow the wedge to remain between, uh, I, I can't let it happen between me and Mary. I can't have, let it happen between me and one of my kids. Can I? It'll foul, it'll fester, it'll get infected. We can't have that. It's my job to do the surgery. It's my job to initiate. What the enemy wants me to do is to be passive. Leaders are not passive. Leaders initiate. Leaders do the right thing as unto the Lord. I am responsible for that family. I will give an account to the Lord. Um, you say, well, why, why, will, why will I give an account to the Lord? Because you've been appointed as leader. A lot of you guys, if you're, if you're my age, you remember uh, a guy who was a baseball manager. You know, there's some real colorful guys in baseball. Casey Stingle uh, was one. Another one was a guy named Leo DeRocher. They called him Leo the Lip. He was the manager for Willie Mays and the Giants. And, and, and he, man, they called him the Lip because he was always going after empires. And he, I don't know how many games the guy got thrown out. And he, he was a smaller guy in stature, real tough little guy, had been a professional ball player, then became a manager. And he always had something to say, and he had a temper. There was an exhibition game, the New York Giants, back when the San Francisco Giants were the New York Giants. Um, they were playing an exhibition game at West Point against the West Point 
baseball team, just an exhibition game. And there's some cadet, Leo's at third base coaching, and there's some cadet that's just razzing And you know, it's a small baseball stadium and you can hear everything, and this guy is just going after DeRocher. West Point. And uh, this, this cadet at one point said, hey DeRocher, how did a little squirt like you get to coach third base? DeRocher looked at him and said, my congressman appointed me. <laughs> that's because the only way you get into a service academy is your congressman appoints you. Do you know why you're accountable for the marriage relationship? Because you've been appointed as leader. If you look at uh, Ephesians 5.23, the Bible says the husband is head of the wife as Christ is head of the church. If you go back to the early uh, chapters of Genesis, I'm going to give you some reasons. And the reason I'm going to give you these reasons is that even in the evangelical church, there is a, a strong movement called egalitarianism. And what that means is, is that basically the husband is not appointed to lead by God. Uh, it's pervasive. It's huge. It's everywhere. Um, I want to give you some reasons out of Genesis chapters 1, 2, and 3. Just very quickly, I'm not going to spend hardly any time. I just want to touch these, and we'll come back to them later. Are you, are you guys with me? Are you? Um, what I'm trying to say to you, you were appointed as leader, as head of your family. Let me give, let me give you some, I'm going to give you one, two, three, four, five, six quick reasons um, number one, the man was created first. He was created first. Number two, 1 Corinthians eleven nine and Genesis 2, verses 18, and then again 20, says that the woman was made for the man, the man was not made for the woman. Now, they're both equal. They were both made in the image of God. If you look at Genesis 1, 26, God, uh, I'm sorry, yeah, 126, God said, let us make man in our image. And then 27, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So male and female are both equal in the eyes of God. In terms of access to God, they correspond to one another. They're two equals. But in the marriage relationship, and this happens throughout society, in every structure of society, you will have people who are both made in the image of God, who are equals, but in order for the institution, the organization, the organism to function among equals, what someone must lead and someone must follow. Does that make sense? So when you're, as it often happens to me, and it happened to me last week, I'm minding my own business, just driving. And a car pulls up behind me with two options that are not on my car, lights and a siren. <laughs> and he turns them on. I'm thinking, who does that guy think he is? I'm a citizen. He's a citizen. I have the Bill of Rights. He has the Bill of Rights. Who the heck does he think he is? In that situation, he has authority over me. 
Does he not? Yes, he does. Thirdly, if you look at Genesis 2, and I'm not going to read the verses, but you start reading down from verse 18, you'll read that God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. He slept. He took one of his ribs, closed it up the flesh at that place. The Lord God fashioned a womb into a woman, the rib which he had taken from the man, brought it to the man. By the way, this is not myth. This is historical fact. And a lot of evangelicals don't believe that. I was reading today a review on a book that talked about the four views of Adam, and only one of the views in evangelical theology and evangelical churches says that Adam was a historical being. Evangelical churches, Bible-believing churches. So the third reason is that the woman was made from the man. The fourth reason is that the woman was then presented to the man. Five, the woman was named by the man in 2.23. The man said, this is now bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Naming is a ruling function. Naming demonstrates the one naming has authority. Uh, The sixth reason is that the woman was made as a suitable helper for the man. If you look at 18, the Lord God said, it's not good for the man to be alone. I will make him a helper suitable for him. So the woman is a helpmate. I heard a woman politician say on more than one occasion, my husband is my helpmate. No, he isn't. It doesn't mean we don't help our wives, but strictly speaking, the man is the head, the wife comes and supports and is the helpmate. This is God's intention. This is not popular in our day and age and in our culture. We'll get into this more in coming weeks. And again, it doesn't mean that you're an authoritarian who doesn't care about your wife's concerns or needs. That's not biblical male leadership. 1 Peter 3, 7, You husbands likewise. Live with your wives in an understanding way as with a weaker vessel since she is a woman. Well, right there, you got explosions. <laughs> what do you mean, weaker vessel? She's weaker, physically. Did you read about the Marine Corps this week? <laughs> they put in new physical... Um, Criteria. They're having to change it. Because the woman, women don't have the strength to do it. Do they? No. And see, this is what happens when you deny truth. Women are physically weaker than men. You and your wife can be the same height and the same weight. But God has made men with 40% more muscle mass. Unless you're married to a Russian woman shot putter... <laughs> on steroids named Olga, (laughs) who often sees East German doctors. You're stronger physically than your wife. It's not a put down, it's it's just a fact. Women and children first. Why? We honor that. We don't, we don't make fun of it. We don't take advantage of our greater strength. We're concerned about our wives and what's going on in their hearts, aren't we? 
But my point is, biblically, the man, the man is given the responsibility to lead the family and to set the pace for the family. Doesn't mean you don't interact with your wife. You do interact with your wife. She's a smart woman. She's, if you have a godly gal who has discernment, why would you not take her counsel into consideration? What a gift that is. My gosh. The, the enemy wants to neutralize. Now, listen, guys. None of us do this right. I, I will say this to you. If your father was not a spiritual leader... See, oftentimes we talk about spiritual leadership. Man, I'm, that kind of freaks me out. I'm not sure how I do that. That's because you say, well, my dad didn't do that. Okay? Well, my dad should have done that. Yeah, he probably should have. But ask yourself the question, why didn't your dad show you what it means to be a spiritual leader? You want to know why? Because his dad didn't show him. Well, why didn't his dad show him? Because his dad didn't show him. Because his dad, this is a generational thing. So what happens is the Lord comes into our lives and redeems us. And maybe you've never had this in your family. Well, you know what? Here's the great thing about the Lord. You can put a new link in the generational chain. You start it. You start it. I learned this from my dad. He learned it from his dad, and his dad didn't have a spiritual leader. My grandpa Farrar, Jubal Spurgeon Farrar, came to know Christ in high school. And he, he put a new link in the chain. So my dad was the beneficiary. I was the beneficiary of what my dad learned. And my grandpa was just trying to figure it out because he hadn't seen it. But he followed Christ, and he read his Bible. And he looked to other godly men and emulated what he saw in their lives. See, this is how you do it. We're, not full, we're, we're, we're going to make mistakes. We're going to fall short. But I'll tell you this. We have got to keep our eyes on Christ. You get as, well, Steve, this is overwhelming. How do I do this? You get as close to Christ as you can. You start getting in the scriptures. And you start learning from godly, mature men. That's how you do it. And things can begin to change. It happens. There are guys in this room. I've seen it happen in their lives. I've seen them go from guys who are passive to guys who are actively leading in balance their families and children that were uh, away from them are reconciled and looking to them for guidance and calling them and asking for their wisdom. God can do this. But we've got to stay the course. Bob Johnson tells this story, and I'm getting close to finishing. With me, that means a half hour. <laughs> Bob Johnson writes this, For years, potential casino operators attempted to get gambling legalized in Detroit. On three different occasions, they got an initiative on the ballot, but there was one pastor in the city who stood in their way. He knew what gambling would do to his city. He organized and educated, and each time the initiative was defeated. Then this pastor had a serious heart attack, and the initiative for casinos in Detroit was back in play. This time, the organizers did not have the pesky pastor to contend with. But they did something else. On the fourth attempt, the organizers gathered a number of pastors from Detroit together and offered them stock in the casinos in exchange for their support from the pulpits. 
They were told to sell this idea to the people as something that would be good for the economy and will save our city. The pastors did, and on the fourth try, the initiative passed. Today, you can visit the casinos. Go to the slot machines and watch the glazed-over faces of old people whose reverse mortgages freed up some money so that they could buy tokens for the slot machines. Hour after hour, they pulled the one-armed bandit, awaiting the glory of the billboard's promise. Then fear sets in. They think, if I get up from the machine, the next person will come and win. So they sit hour after hour until their clothes are soiled and their tokens are gone. Next month, after the Social Security check arrives, some of them will be on the first bus back to try again. And in case you haven't heard, Detroit is bankrupt because the leaders didn't lead. One man stood up. One, one man stood up and led. One man stood up and no one stood with him. And then he was laid aside and compromise came in. The danger is our families can become bankrupt by a lack of leadership. Hey guys, we have all screwed up in this area. The purpose of this is not to load down men in this room with guilt. The purpose is to remind ourselves that we have a great Savior. We have a God who wants to take us from being men whose houses are built on the sand to being men whose houses are built on the foundation. And if he sees a willing heart and a teachable heart, he will begin to do a work. And even if bankruptcies occurred in your family and you've been at the helm, he can turn it around. It's what he does. He's a great God. He's a great Savior. He loves to redeem families. The last verse of the Old Testament To me, it's fascinating because at the end of Malachi, God wasn't going to speak for 400 years. If you're at the last verse of the last chapter of Malachi, which is the last book of the Old Testament, and then you turn one page, you'll be in Matthew in the New Testament. Well, there's 400 years between the end of Malachi and the beginning of Matthew. And the last thing God says is this, he, when he comes, and it's a reference to John the Baptist coming. We know that from Luke 1.17, but I don't want to get into that. He, when he comes, watch this, will restore the hearts of the fathers to the children and the children to the fathers, lest I come and smite the land with a curse. He wants us to be connected. It's the greatest thing in life. Is it not? Let's pray. Thank you, Father. Who is adequate for these things? We're not. None of us are. But Paul went on and said, but you have made us adequate by your Spirit, the servants of a new covenant. Father, we grieve over what we see happening in our country. 
And none of us here have perfect families. We're, we're, our fa we're, we're, there are no perfect people. There are no perfect families. We're all flawed people, and we all have our issues. Gosh, we all, we've made mistakes. We have known what we should have done, and we didn't do it. We've been passive. We, we've done all these things, and we could get so... We could just get paralyzed with that, but that's not what you want, and that's not what we want for this study, Lord. The point is, as Paul said, you follow me as I follow Christ. We want to be men who are following you. We want to be men who are not conformed to this world, but men who are being transformed by the renewing of our minds in Christ Jesus. Thank you for your patience. Thank you for your forgiveness. Thank you for your encouragement. When you see a willing heart, Lord, you move heaven and hell to help. If we take one step towards you, you take many steps towards us. We thank you that our failures are covered under the blood of Christ. But Lord, would you use this study, Lord willing, that you'll give to us to once again underscore how critical a role you have given us and that you are willing, more than willing to help and aid and assist us in these responsibilities. We are not in this by ourselves. We ask you to do the work in us and in our families and our wives and our kids. Do the work that we could never do. There is a work of the heart and soul that only you can do. Bring unity, bring love, bring forgiveness and reconciliation by the power of your spirit and the blood of the Lamb, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.